Hi church family, it's uh, nice to meet with you again. And renovation's going really well, we're back on the third floor. Um, they're putting drywall up in the restrooms. Uh, it's just, everything's looking really, really great. Hope you're getting excited. We're getting excited to be able to join together again um, at our church building. Um, so I hope you are as well. Um, uh, we love you. We're glad that we can provide this uh, service to you. It's a blessing to us, and we hope it's a blessing to you. Uh, today we're going to be looking at, um, we're going to be back in the book of Mark. Mark's been kind of our central focus for the last year, year and a half. We've gone other places, but we've always come back to Mark. And so we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 11, verse 11, Mark 11, 11. We'll go through verse 21. Very interesting, kind of weird, can be a weird passage. So I think, uh, I think we're going to learn a lot to get today, and uh, we're going to see uh, Jesus in his glory today. So would you bow with me as you're turning there? Um, let's, let's bow together and pray over our time. Father, we thank you for the blessing that technology can be. We thank you that uh, we can gather together, even though we're not physically together, we can gather together over your word. And Father, we just pray. Um, as we see Jesus, that we can see him clearly. Father, I pray that you give me the words to say so my brothers and sisters here, my friends and neighbors, or even uh, whoever might watch this, Father, can see Jesus clearly and see how amazing he is and, and how worthy of all praise, honor, and glory he is. Father, in spite of my sinfulness, we ask that you speak clearly. And in spite of our sinfulness, would you prepare our hearts to hear the word. May we be changed from it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, such a weird passage. What we're going to do, we're going to jump right in. We're going to read it, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it. Okay, so let's read it first uh, before we give any kind of context, and we'll kind of see, see kind of how strange this passage can be. It goes like this. This is Mark chapter 11, big number 11, little number 11, right after the triumphal entry. It goes like this. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when he, they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed, that you cursed, has withered. What a strange passage. What a strange passage. It's one of those passages that to really drink deeply of its meaning um, takes 
some understanding of the context and the culture, uh, under, uh, understanding of what's going on there, what has gone on in the Old Testament. Uh, it, but it, but it, it's, it can be controversial. Uh, Bertrand Russell, one of the most famous atheists of the past 100, 150 years, uh, Bertrand Russell used this passage as one reason that he rejected Christianity. He called it, uh, uh, he, he said something along the lines of, Jesus is grossly angry towards an innocent plant. Poor innocent plant. Like kind of saying there could be guilty plants and innocent plants. I think all plants are pretty much innocent, but he used that as a, well, look at this ridiculous passage. Um, in fact, just a couple months ago, I had a young friend uh, text me about this passage, that he has a, uh, an atheist friend that he works with, who is uh, um, pretty staunch atheist and, and has little good to say about Christianity. And he brought up, the, the friend brought up this passage. And he said, well, the Bible's just ridiculous. Look at, uh, look at the passage on the fig tree. It just seems, seems random. It seems, um, seems like Jesus just loses, just flips his lid at a tree. Isn't that weird? And, and if, you, if we see it from that direction and, and we don't look into it and, and we don't meditate on it and we don't try to see what's really going on there, a cursory reading, of course that's what it looks like. That's weird. It's a weird passage. But... Although at first glance, it might seem out of place or out of character for Jesus, it actually has tremendous value for understanding who Jesus is, understanding who we are as the church, and understanding who Israel was, what the temple was, and what God desires out of His people. There's tremendous truth here, as there is on every page. And so, although I might, my, maybe my reading time in the morning, I might get to this passage and I got babies crying and kids spilling milk and I've got to get ready for work and all these things to do and I'm, I'm trying to read and I'm trying to study God's Word and I might read it and I might say, wow, that's just weird. Maybe that's you. You've read it and you said that's weird and just kind of moved on. Uh, well, today we're going we're gonna to hear what the truth about this passage is. Why does Jesus do what He does? What does He mean by doing what He does? And what does it mean for us? The cursing of the fig tree. And so the first thing to understand is that Jesus is being weird on purpose. Jesus is being weird on purpose. This is an illustrated prophecy. Weird on purpose. It's a prophecy using things in the real world, using people or objects or plants or animals, using things in the real world to convey a deeper message about what God is going to do. It's a prophecy. It's an illustrated prophecy. Jesus is being weird on purpose. We've got to remember, Jesus wears many hats. He is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. He is fully God. Everything that it means to be God is true of Jesus. He is fully man. Everything that it means to be man is true of Jesus. He is a king. He's a king of kings and lord of lords. He is a king of the Jews. He is a priest. He is offering up his own body to God as a sacrifice for our sins. And he's also a prophet, speaking the words of God. He's a prophet, priest, and king, and much more. He's much more than just a prophet. But he certainly is a prophet speaking the words of God. He is God. He speaks the words of God. And so, Jesus is a prophet. He is using an illustrated prophecy to convey a deep, meaningful description of what God is going to do. And this is, he is in a long line 
of biblical prophets using such illustrations. There's some crazy ones in Scripture. What, what would you do? What would you do if you saw a prophet of God, if you saw Isaiah running around the streets naked prophesying? I tell you what you wouldn't do. You would never forget that. I'll tell you what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't misunderstand what he's saying. You would know exactly. If, he's, if God, God tells Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 20 to prophesy naked, there's a message, there's a meaning there. You're going to get the meaning across to these people using that kind of a vivid illustration. God wants to get a point across. Or we have something, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah, in his, pro, in his prophetic uh, message, he takes a clay jar and he smashes it for the people. Get, you get your point across. Vivid reminder of what God is going to do. You're going to wake up tomorrow, you're going to think about some of these things. It's going to be striking in your mind. One of my favorites is Ezekiel 4. Ezekiel, God prophesies through Ezekiel and tells Ezekiel, hey, go out, play in the dirt, and make a model city so that I, will, I can prophesy to the people what I will do. And he goes and plays and he makes a model city with walls and buildings and vivid, illustrative prophecy. And so that's what Jesus is doing. The passage tells us, it doesn't, it doesn't hide anything. The passage tells us Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree in leaf. And he goes and he looks for figs. And the passage even tells us, Mark tells us, it's not the season for figs. Jesus isn't a fool. Jesus hasn't forgotten. He knows that it's not, a se it's not the season for ripe figs. And so he's walking along with his disciples and he sees an opportunity to use something in the environment, in the world, to make a statement, to make a prophecy, to prophesy. And it, it stuck in their memory, didn't it? The next day, a lot happened this day. Jesus clears the timbers. There's a lot of things going on in their minds. And Peter walks by. Peter remembered and saw the tree that stuck in his mind, this vivid prophecy, using the illustration using the fig tree in leaf that has no fruit, cursing it, stuck in Peter's mind. So, so that's what Jesus is doing, a, using a vivid illustration to make a prophecy. And so now, what is he saying? That's the important part. What is he saying? God speaks in the Old Testament, and in several places... He uses a fig tree to symbolize Israel. does this in Hosea 9.10. He does this in Jeremiah 24. He does this in Jeremiah 8.13. He says this in Jeremiah 8.13. When I would gather them, Israel declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. So in that passage, he's comparing Israel with this fig tree that is not producing fruit, that is not even produced, that is, has withered leaves, that is sick. And he's using it, fig tree to symbolize Israel. And so, so when we see what Jesus is doing, Fig tree, illustrated, a long line of, of prophetic illustrations in the Old Testament. He's using this to tell us a message, and he's using a fig tree because he is speaking to us about 
Israel, God's people. And so then we ask, well, what's the purpose of a fig tree? The purpose of a fig tree is to produce fruit. That's the purpose. The purpose of the fig tree is to produce fruit. So Jesus sees the fig tree, goes up to it, searching for fruit. Illustration, right? He knows, it, he knows it's not seeing Searching for fruit, not seeing any fruit from this fruit tree, from this fig tree. Jesus curses it. And so if, if the curse comes to the fig tree, which symbolizes Israel, for being fruitless, then what should Israel be about? What should Israel be producing? What is the fruit of Israel? For fig tree is Israel. There's no fruit on the fig tree. What's the fruit that Israel is supposed to produce? Well, there's probably many things that we could talk about. But in the context of what we're going to see in the temple, I believe it's really clear to us that Israel's fruit that Jesus does not see really comes in, in two places. There are two fruits that Jesus is looking for, that God is looking for in Israel that he will not find. So what's the purpose of Israel? The purpose of Israel is to facilitate the worship of God. To facilitate the worship of God. God deserves all praise, honor, and glory. He deserves every tongue, every breath, every body, every nation to be singing His praises. That's what He deserves. And we, as human beings, are most fulfilled. We'll be living our best lives. We'll be more blessed, more joyful. We'll be most joyful and most fulfilled when we are worshiping the Most High God. Worshiping in song, worshiping with our lives, worshiping with our careers, worshiping with our kids. There's many more ways than just singing, but, but Israel's job, Israel's purpose, the fruit that they were to produce is to facilitate the worship of God. We see this many places, but here's, here's one of the most clear, one of the clearest that I've found. Exodus 19.6, talking about Israel and a relationship with Israel, with God. He says this, And you, Israel, shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Well, priests are, in, are responsible for the worship, facilitating the worship of the people towards God, facilitate the, the relationship with the people towards God, or over the sacrifices, make sure they, that we can, we can continue this blessed relationship with the Creator of the universe, or to facilitate that. How do we do? bring the people to God in worship? And Israel is to be a kingdom of priests, isn't that amazing? So there are priests in Israel. That's job is to literally, what we would think as facilitate worship of God in the temple, in the synagogue, wherever it might be. We have these religious people whose job it is. But God is saying you're a kingdom. From priests to newborn baby, your job as an Israelite is to facilitate the worship of God. To make it possible for people to worship the most holy God, to be in a loving relationship with the Most Holy God.
from top to bottom. Doesn't matter if you're a stone cutter, doesn't matter if you're a, 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 a mason, doesn't matter if you're a, a butcher, doesn't matter if, no matter what it is, from top to bottom, no matter what your career is, no matter what age you are, you are a kingdom. God says, I am choosing you and your purpose, your fruit is to facilitate worship, a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. And so, so that's, the, that's fruit that matches well with the temple, right? And the other fruit, the other question, same, maybe same fruit from a different angle, is who are we supposed to be facilitating worship among? Is it just for Israel? No. Israel's purpose is to facilitate the worship of God for the whole world. To help the entire world be in a worshipful, loving relationship with the Creator of the universe, with God. Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The fruit that Israel is to produce is to be a light to the nations so the nations can see the truth about who God is in the world that is dark Israel is to be the light and so people can gather around the light and hear the word of God and hear how good he is and listen Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 49 6 think about how important this is he says I will make you Israel as a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth to the end of the earth. So, not only are we to facilitate worship, not only are we to be a light to the nations, but we're a light to the nations so that the salvation of the Lord can go out to all the nations, to the end of the earth. Our God loves saving sinners, doesn't He? He loves saving sinners. And Israel's fruit is to be a light to the nations, facilitate the worship of God. You come in Israel as the priests for the world, that they can see the salvation that is in Yahweh, their God, the one and truly only God, to see salvation. And then Jesus, of course, is going to be coming in the people of Israel. And so in that way, too, they're kind of facilitating this salvation, right? They're just the people. And so Jesus is going to be one of them. And so, so the ancestors have kind of facilitated Jesus coming just by being uh, Israeli, just by being an Israelite. And Jesus comes in Israelites to, uh, to be the, the fullness of this facilitating the worship of God. And of course, sadly, they reject Jesus, the fulfillment of their purpose. They reject Him. But that is the fruit for Israel. Facilitate the worship of God. And to be a light to the nations so the salvation of God goes to the ends of the earth. Does that sound familiar? Okay. So that's, that's the prophecy. That's the fruit that Jesus wants to see. But as we see, the beginning and the end of this passage, Jesus doesn't find fruit, curses the tree. And then at the end of the passage, Peter and the disciples and Jesus are walking back towards Bethany and they see the tree and the tree has withered from its roots. Jesus has cursed the tree. That's striking. That's striking. That's scary. It's a scary prophecy. 
So Jesus is not going to find what he is looking for. And so, smushed in between the fig tree is this passage about the temple. Now the temple was where the presence of God dwelled on earth. It was the holiest, it's the holiest place on earth. Holiest place for Israel, holiest place on earth. The temple. And so smashed between these fig trees is the temple. And so what we are to read is Jesus curses the fig tree and then shows us exactly why he curses the fig tree. And then we see this, we get this sense of what the curse will bring. And so we see from the very beginning, we, we dipped back into verse 11, and I wanted to see verse 11 because he comes in on the triumphal entry, enters Jerusalem on the donkey, everyone's cheering, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes as the, the king, and everybody's cheering him on. So he comes into Jerusalem, and then we get this, this little this verse in verse 11 that, that as he entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple. So he comes in and he goes to the temple. It's like he's got his mindset. He knows what he's going to be about. He knows what he's going to do. And when he had looked around at everything, went in the temple, looked around at everything, and as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So what I think we can say is, verse 11, and then in verse 15, we see the owner inspect the fig tree. So just as he went to the, fig, the literal fig tree and saw that there was no fruit, that's what happened in verse 11. He has gone into the temple, the owner of the temple, the Lord of the temple, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of Israel, the Lord of all, goes into the temple, inspects the fig tree, and he sees everything. Goes home and sleeps. Everybody wakes up. The disciples come. Jesus sees the fig tree. He's hungry. He uses this as an illustrated prophecy. He goes to the fig tree. Sees that there's no fruit, curses it. He saw that there was no fruit in verse 11 in the temple. Goes on into the temple. Let's read this again. Verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus has witnessed in the temple the fruitlessness of Israel. So as he's entering the temple, what do you see in the temple? Well, the temple was one of the, the uh, wonders of the ancient world. Beautiful, immaculate, huge 37 acres. That's 28 football fields. That's the temple complex. It's huge. And Jesus is coming to inspect during Passover, the most important time in the Jewish calendar, the most important time for the temple. Hundreds and of thousands of Jews from all over the world would flock to the temple to make sacrifices during Passover. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. Jerusalem's population would balloon to over a million during Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people. This, the, the temple was so busy during Passover that the Jewish historian Josephus would say 250,000 sheep were sacrificed in one year during Passover in the temple. 
Isn't that amazing? It's huge. Pilgrims would come from all over the Roman world to sacrifice doves and sheep and make other sacrifices, do other, do other religious business, to worship the Lord all over the Roman world. And so what do international pilgrims need? If you're a Jew that's living in Rome and you make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you're going to need a couple things. You're, you're not going to take a sheep from Rome and you're going to buy a ticket on a, on a plane and fly it over. Of course, there are no planes, but, but you, you get my drift. You're not going to take it from Rome. You're going to buy one there. It's not a bad thing. You're also going to need money to buy the sheep. You're going to have to exchange your currency for what was used in Jerusalem. It's the same thing. If we go on an international, an international trip, we go to Europe, I need to exchange my American dollars for euros. That's, that's just what happens. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. In fact, for a long, long time, there were four stations outside the temple, four large areas where these things could happen. People could come buy the animals they needed for the sacrifice. They could exchange their money. They could, they could do that in four locations. But somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, enterprising, if we want to call them that, enterprising people and the religious elite said, you know what, we could probably make more money If instead of relying on marketplaces outside the temple, what if we brought the marketplace inside the temple complex? And so what they did, in effect, was the largest courtyard of the temple, inside the temple complex, became a stockyard. With thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of animals within this huge complex, being bought and being sold. And it would be a money-changing station where you'd have many people that set up, would have different rates that you can exchange money, and of course they're going to make enough, they're going to make a lot of money. I mean, you're, you're going to come from Rome, you can't really haggle too much, there's going to be one price, what are you going to do, go home? No, you're already here, so you're going to make do and these money changers and these people who sold animals, they made good living. Probably fair to say they took advantage of these worshipers. I think we could all understand that. We can all see ourselves taking advantage of people in that way too. If we're honest with ourselves, we could see, our, we could see a scenario in which we would be doing the same thing. We can't look down our nose at, at them. We're sinners like they are. And so... What Jesus sees is he's in this area, and then he comes in and expects, inspects for fruit. And what Jesus finds is the temple has been segregated. Now, the, the only segregation that happens in the Old Testament is God creates, he, he orders the building of the temple. The only thing that he has done is he has said, this place, the inner workings of the temple are for priests, and then everything else is for everyone else. Israel and the nations. So priest and everyone else. That was, that's, that's the segregation that God had. But what Jesus finds is that closer you are to the presence of God, the more segregated things get. So yes, still the inner workings are just for the priests. But then, if you're a Jewish man, you're the priest, you can be right here. And then... If you're a Jewish woman, you can't go that close to God, but you can get this close to God. 
And then, if you're everybody else, if you're a Gentile, we'll let you into the temple complex. We'll let you into the biggest area of the temple complex, but you can't go where the Jews can go. That's what Jesus finds. In fact, and we've talked about this before, separating the court of the Gentiles from everyone else, segregating them, was a wall, and the wall had this on it. No foreigner may enter within the wall around the sanctuary at the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he, be, shall he put blame for the death that will ensue. So, what kind of environment is the owner of the fig tree discovering? He comes in and he sees the people who are to be a priest, a nation of priests, so that the salvation of the Lord will reach the ends of the earth. These people, instead of blessing the Gentiles, instead of teaching the Gentiles about God, instead of being facilitating the worship of God for the Gentiles, instead of doing that, they have treated the Gentiles to a stockyard. A Gentile coming to, maybe they've heard about the God of Israel, and they've read the Old Testament about the Messiah coming, and maybe they have the Ten Commandments have exposed in, their, in themselves that they need a Savior, and they've heard the message of the Gospel even in the Old Testament, because it's there, and they come to the temple, they want to worship this God, and what they find is, I got sheep, cheapest sheep in all the temple. Come, best exchange rate in all the temple. Hey, you, sir, you want to buy pigeons? They see, they hear that. They hear the bleeding of sheep. They're jostled around by hundreds of thousands of people and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of animals. The smell, the stink, the sound. You cannot worship in that environment. And what that says to the Gentiles is, we're the people of God. We have sparkly clean areas where we can worship God, but you're lucky to have a stockyard. The stockyard was not in the court of the Jewish men, not in the court of the Jewish women, was in the court of the Gentiles. The hypocrisy of calling ourselves the people of God and totally rejecting the purpose that God has for us is just astonishing, astounding. And we see the righteous anger welling up in Jesus. So Jesus comes in this huge area and John John chapter 2 adds a, a good flavor to this. He says, Jesus fashions for himself a whip and drives them all out. Flips over tables, flips over seats, whips animals, drives everybody out of the temple. Can you imagine the chaos? 
you're here and maybe you're here with your kids from Rome and, and you're, you're buying your sheep and all of a sudden you hear a commotion over here and, and this guy comes in with a whip and he's whipping people and driving them out of the temple complex and they're going and you're, you're what's going on? And everybody starts running. You start running, flipping over tables. Everybody is out. He clears them out. He clears them out. And he doesn't just stop the worship. He doesn't just stop what's going on in there. He clears them out, and then he's allowing people back in. But you know what he's doing? He says he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So he was, as we understand it, this is what he would be doing. This is, he, he wouldn't allow people to bring in a wallet. He wouldn't allow people to bring in a staff. He told them to take off their shoes. And so what God in flesh is doing in his own temple is he is, for the first time in years and years and years, facilitating the worship of God. Imagine the silence that comes over that environment for the first time in a long time during Passover. The juxtaposition comparing what, was, what happened 30 minutes ago and the, the smell and the jostling and the sounds, comparing that with silence. Must have been so powerful. And your, my mind races with wondering how many Gentiles were able to worship God for the first time? How many people came to a saving faith in Yahweh for the first time? It was so powerful and it wrecked the system that was so corrupt so much that the religious elite Discussed how we destroy Jesus. So, this event happens, and we're not told that if this changed anything for long term, the next day everything could have gone back to normal, um, likely went back to normal, and, but this was just a day where the temple met its purpose because of the work of Jesus. Worship of God was facilitated in the way that it was meant to because of Jesus. And they leave the temple, and then the next day, Peter, hey, Jesus, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered from the roots. A, a seismic shift in the world would happen 70 A.D. A couple decades later, a few decades later, the Romans would destroy Israel. 
and would knock down the temple. And we see, we see, uh, Jesus knows that this is coming. This is the, this is the withering of the, of the fig tree. Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed. In Luke chapter 19, it says this, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So a very somber passage. But what do we see? What do we learn about Jesus in this passage? Well, I think the, the foundational gospel truth that we see is that Jesus is the new and better temple. The temple was the center of the religious world. Simple, the center of the Jewish world. It was where God's presence literally dwelled on the earth. It was where the kingdom of priests were meant to ultimately facilitate the worship of God. They worshiped God anywhere, but this was a magnifying glass that, that magnified the place of worship was the temple. It's the center of the universe. And we see because of our sinfulness, our sinful nature, Israel could not facilitate the worship of God as he deserved. And we're all in there, aren't we? Again, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have done any better. And so what you have, because the fig tree was not producing fruit because the people of God were rejecting their call to be priest, a priesthood, a kingdom of priests to facilitate the worship of God so that the salvation of God would go out to all the earth. Because they've rejected that, Jesus shows up in the temple and He facilitates the worship of God in a way that hasn't happened for years and years and years and years and years. He facilitates the worship of God. And so what you see and what the theme is, what a, a huge theme in Scripture is, Jesus is the new and better temple. He's the new and better sacrificial lamb. He's the new and better Moses. He's the new and better David. He's the new and better judge. He's the new and better X, Y, and Z. He's the new and better everything. And almost at the pinnacle of that theme is the temple. He is the new and better temple. He is the new and better priest that facilitates the worship so that the call of salvation goes out across the world. We see that working here. The temple is done. Jesus is not there to reform the temple. He's there to abolish the temple. Because He's the new one. He's the new one. We see that in John chapter 2. People come to Jesus and they say, What sign do you show us for, the, for doing these things? What sign do you have to show us that you are who you say you are? You're the Messiah. You're this guy. Jesus answered him, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
That big temple back there took 46 years. It's going to be knocked down in a moment. Those Romans are good at knocking buildings. I'm going to knock that temple down in a moment. You knock this temple down and I'm going to raise back up in three days. He's the new temple. He is the single sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 10, I love how to, Hebrews 10 says, And the priest at the temple stands daily at his task, killing these animals for the forgiveness of sins, but they will never be able to catch up with the sinfulness of our hearts. The, the blood of, of goats and bulls can never truly bring the forgiveness of sins that we desperately need. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We don't need 250,000 sheep every year. Year after year after year, we need one Jesus. And we're forgiven. Jesus is better. Jesus, the temple had God's presence. Jesus is God's presence with us. Behold, Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We don't need the temple for God's presence. Jesus was here walking among us. He is God's presence. But then he dies and is raised again and we're saved and he ascends to heaven. He's not here anymore. What happens to God's presence? Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. He says this, If you love me, keep, keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. But you will know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus is better. The temple complex had one room where the presence of God was. Jesus came and walked among us. The presence of God was among us. And not only that, when he left, it gets even better. He sends God to dwell in us. So now you and I have the presence of God with us forever, Christian. Isn't that good news? And he is not just salvation for the Jews. He is salvation that will go out for all the earth, to all the earth. For God so loved the world. The world. He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, He didn't rely on Israel forever. Israel was to be the light to the nations, but like all of us, we're sinful. We fall short of that purpose. And as we fall short of that purpose, the message is people can't do it. Jesus comes and shows us that He is who we need. That goodness for all the world. So what does this mean for Trinity Baptist Church? Well, we started out talking about the fruit of Israel was to be the facilitators, the kingdom of priests, so the salvation of God will go to the ends of the earth. What does that mean for Trinity? If you've been in church a while, you might recognize that language. When Jesus came, he didn't say, I now no longer want a kingdom of priests. He still has a kingdom of priests. And that's Trinity Baptist Church. And that's all gospel-believing churches around the world. We are the new kingdom of priests. 
1 Peter 2, 9, New Testament, the temple. Jesus abolished the temple. Jesus came. He died. He rose again. He sent the Holy Spirit. And Peter writes this to churches and he says this, But you, Christian, you church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, that your priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the new Israel. We are the new kingdom of priests and priestesses. We are called to now be the facilitators of worship, our own worship, the worship of our children, the worship of our nation's neighbors. We're to call them to come worship God with us. Israel had the temple. We have Jesus. Come, come, see the one sacrifice that was made for all so that all who call upon his name will be forgiven of our sins and be children of God. That's our purpose. That's the fruit. We talk about it all the time. Making faithful followers is why we are still here. That's why we're on this planet. So, church, as a chosen priesthood, do we understand our purpose? Christian, your purpose is to facilitate the worship of the Most High God for you and for the world. Your royal priesthood. You are to bring people to see the sacrifice that has been made. The perfect sacrifice that has been made. Trinity, let's not forget our purpose. I don't want I don't want the Lord of the tree, the Lord of the fruit tree, the Lord of the temple, the Lord of the church, the Lord of my life, the Lord of my family. I don't want the Lord to come and inspect me and find me fruitless. Yes, we are covered by the blood of Jesus and our tree will never wither down. But I don't want Jesus to inspect me and find me fruitless. So church. What does it mean to be the church? We've, we've talked about that for several weeks back in Mark. And here it is. What does it mean to be the church? The church's job is to be a chosen priesthood. Let's do all that we can to make faithful followers of Jesus. So here's my challenge. Who do you have as neighbors, as friends, as family who do not worship God? Will you commit to praying for them and telling them the good news about Jesus? Commit to maybe invite them to church. Invite them to, we're at South Broadway now for a few more weeks. Invite them. South Broadway, 2 o'clock, come and see. Let us facilitate the worship of God. We love you. We love you. We're excited to see you again very soon.